research that changes lives. Four simple words inspiring researchers at the University of Leeds to reshape the world. I am Professor Simone Boutenay. Since arriving at the university in 2020 as Vice-Chancellor, I've been amazed by the passion, creativity and ingenuity of the research community to make a difference. Having the opportunity to exercise choice is really you know, key to palliative care and that individualised care that supports the person in the last few months of life. We need to learn from the mistakes that we've made and we need to learn from the instances where prevention of atrocities work. I think the COVID-19 pandemic actually forced us to become a little bit more digitally literate, although I do think we still have some room to kind of continue growing. One of my priorities has been to learn more about the sheer range of research carried out by early career researchers at Leeds. They are the new generation of world changers, people working tirelessly with communities and academics around the world on finding solutions to seemingly intractable problems. Over the course of this podcast series, I will be in conversation with those researchers. Join me as our world changers describe new discoveries and approaches that will make the world a better and more equitable place to live. It's about research that changes lives. Hello and welcome to this latest podcast. I'm Professor Simone Buitendijk, the Vice-Chancellor, and joining me in conversation is Dr. Bridget Buick. Our topic is the compassionate curriculum. Bridget is developing a curriculum at Leeds that has students' well-being at its heart. The project was launched two years ago following concerns that many students were experiencing anxiety linked to the pressures of being at university. She believes a compassionate curriculum will reduce those feelings of anxiety and increase student motivation, sense of belonging and fulfillment. And the benefits extend much further. A compassionate curriculum, argues Bridget, is one that meets the needs of a diverse student body and so it reduces inequalities. It also fosters empathy among students and staff. Bridget is a psychologist and an associate professor in the School of Medicine. Welcome to the podcast. So welcome, Bridget, and thanks for spending time with me. Thanks for inviting me, Simone. Sure, sure. Really looking forward to this conversation. So we'll, we'll discuss the details, of course, through this podcast. But can you start by maybe giving us, me and the listeners, a brief description of what a compassionate curriculum is exactly? So for me, I guess a compassionate curriculum is one that's, that's fair, that's not more difficult than it need be. That's quite often how students talk about it. It's one where students are uh, respected, they're seen, they're valued, uh, where there's space for them to have that curiosity and there's space for life events to happen, I guess as well as, as part of this. No, it's, that sounds wonderful and it sounds very much like what we're trying to achieve more broadly at the University of Leeds. So you're, you're a psychologist who's been researching questions around student mental health for many years. So how did you come up with the idea of, of crafting a compassionate curriculum? I guess I started around 15, 16, 17 years ago, and we were very much trying to understand what's going on with student mental health. 
Students were reporting um, higher levels of psychological distress. Uh, we knew that we needed some specialist services because traditional services didn't seem to be meeting the needs of university students. And we really noticed that there was this ebb and flow in terms of particularly anxiety across the academic year. And we've done some great work at Leeds and across the sector, I think, in really investing in those services and getting those services, we've still got more to do, but getting those services to really meet the needs of students or beginning to meet the needs of students. And I was really struck that things I was writing in 2004 were still holding up today that despite all of this stuff, all of the stuff that we were doing, at its core, students were still finding university distressing and psychologically difficult to cope with. So I thought, could we do it differently? <laughs> is there a different way of doing this? That as well as all the things that we've got around the edges in terms of counselling, specialist treatment, signposting to NHS, all of that, what is it that we are doing as part of everyday core business at the university that could help address this. And I think putting compassion into the curriculum and into our campuses is the way that we can really make a difference for the entire student population. So, so what were the problems that you were identifying in the student population? So there's that felt sense of anxiety, I guess, and that felt sense of being unable to cope, of feeling overwhelmed, for some students, there's a sense of isolation and loneliness, um, particularly for students who perhaps for the first time are away from their support structures. We also have students who are trying to cope with transitions at a time where they're also trying to cope with overly packed curriculum, overly packed sense of making the most of absolutely everything, you know, doing absolutely everything. So I think there are some students as well who are suffering or are challenged by or have as part of who they are um, high levels of mental distress anyway. They may have a clinical diagnosis, they may not. And for those students, being at university exacerbates that because of these extra pressures and coping. So I think it's both for people who, in, in medical terms, we would talk about people who are non-clinical in terms of their levels of distress. What are the pressures on them? And how are those kind of coming to the forefront? But then there's also for people who do have a clinical diagnosis, what is it that university is doing that makes it just way more difficult and makes it more difficult for them to succeed than it should be? So there's a number of different things, I think, going on for different people. Yeah, that, that's what I find fascinating about your work, that you're also looking at the very process of education and learning and, and that you're identifying elements of that that actually make things worse, whether students have a clinical diagnosis or not. I think we should find ways to not raise their stress levels beyond what they are when they come into university. So can you talk a little bit about that? What are we doing in the way we deliver education that clearly makes things worse? I think part of it, and Paul Campbell from Leicester talks about this, part of it is when students come in, we think about what do we need students to know and understand in order that they can cope with the university experience. 
And perhaps we should turn that around a little bit and think about designing the early parts of our programs to fit the needs of the students who are coming through the door. Yeah. I think as well, there is been, the curriculum's been having more and more things added to it. And we have this idea that we need to teach everything and all these skills. And, and we sort of forget, I think, along the way that part of being at university is learning how to learn. So we don't need to learn it all right now. So we cram everything in. We also, and I say this as someone who's now worked in universities for quite a long time, I think we forget that universities are quite a strange place to be. They have their own rules, their own processes, and all of that hidden processes, all of those hidden curriculum means that Students don't know how they should even be behaving. And so they're negotiating an environment where they don't even know the rules, a lot of people. And then we add to that the complexity and the challenges of each discipline as well. So when you bring all of these things together in a packed timetable, there's no space. And I think that students struggle sometimes to see the compassion in the university experience. And I think staff struggle to think about things in a compassionate way because they're also very caught up in the system. So when we create space to breathe and to kind of think about fairness, quite often people say to me, oh, Bridget, but are you talking about making things easier? And when I talk to students, they do not want that. They work really hard at university. They want their degrees to be worth something, to mean something. So they don't want it to be easy. They just want it to be not more difficult than it needs to be. Not needlessly stressful. Exactly. Yeah. I know you think some of these problems are rooted in the way that higher education is sold to students by schools or universities or parents. Can you say a bit more about that? It's really interesting. When you talk to students, they describe the way that university is kind of portrayed when they come on open days and prospectuses on the television. You know, for students who are first in family, their first initiation to universities in films and on television. And because we're all competing, if we're honest, for the students and we want them all to come along, we tend to sell the best of what it might be. And we sometimes talk about these will be the best years of our lives and you're going to make the best friends and look at these people. They found their lifelong partner and they've just got married and it's all been perfect. And what students say is actually we'd like a more realistic view of what it's like we'd like to know of all the great things. You know, there's brilliant facilities on campuses. There are amazing opportunities. But can you give us a heads up that it's going to be difficult sometimes, that actually lots of us fail at something at some point throughout the degree and that that's okay? Can you make it known that if you don't make your best friends in the first two weeks, that's absolutely okay? Um, <laughs> that idea of every opportunity, you know, we talk about making the most of every opportunity. Well, actually, it's every opportunity that's right for you right now, where you are and what you can put into it in terms of time. So I think we aren't very honest about what university looks like. It's not that we're dishonest. We're not selling something that isn't there, but we're only showing one side of the coin. And I think 
one of the things that students talk about is it's actually those conversations they have with the student ambassadors, which are more around, it's tough, but this university supports you in this way when it gets tough. This university understands that you can't do everything all of the time. And those things are a strength, but I think as a sector, we don't see those as strengths, we see them as weaknesses. But students really value it when they have an honest, authentic perspective of what university is going to be like so they can prepare for that. Yeah, it's almost like real life, isn't it? Exactly. I guess part of the drive for a more compassionate curriculum is to support students better when they make that transition. And then what do you think universities can improve on in that space? I think we can most definitely be more honest about some of the challenges that people are going to face. I think we can think more, and I know Leeds is doing a lot of work around this, around not telling everything, everything they need to know the first second they walk through the door and expecting everyone to retain it. I think we can really value the relationships that we have, both in terms of student to student and also student to staff. When you ask students, about the points where they think that they have experienced that sense of belonging, that sense of compassion, that sense of inclusion, it almost always includes a person. And I think sometimes we forget about the importance of people in all of our processes. Yep. Other people may disagree, but I think it's unrealistic to think that all of our policies, which are written in legalese, are going to be entirely compassionate. I think where we can do it is the translation of those, and it's people who do those translations and implementations. I think we can free up our curriculum a bit, and I know Leeds is embarking on a series of events and programs through Curriculum Redefined, which will allow us to do that. And I think that freeing up space will allow us to see the opportunities. I think we can really value all of those little interactions that we have. And we can also think about kindness, kindness in terms of our feedback, our interactions. And that goes both ways, though. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, we need that partnership. Um, it's a vulnerable place to be creating a more compassionate and kinder way of being at university. And we need to trust that in our relationships with students, with staff and amongst everyone, that that compassion will be reciprocated because it takes effort and vulnerability to do this work, I think. Thank you for listening to this World Changes podcast from the University of Leeds. I'm Professor Simone Buitendijk, and I am in conversation with Dr. Bridget Buick about her research into the compassionate curriculum. Yeah. So Bridget, can you explain to me how a compassionate curriculum can improve equality or even equity maybe? How does, how does that work? It's a great question and it covers so many facets of what the compassionate curriculum is all about. So if we can get compassionate curriculum right, we know that that is in part around increasing belonging. And we know belonging is directly related to educational outcomes, particularly in groups that are marginalized and minoritized. So for groups that haven't traditionally been marginalized, it has very little effect for them in some ways. The grades don't go down, they're still succeeding, they're still doing great. 
But a compassionate curriculum is particularly of benefit for those students who were not best served by the old way that we were doing things at university. So as a result, it becomes an environment where the, the playing field is slightly more even. And it means that students feel like they're included, they are included, they feel they belong, they can see themselves in that curriculum. It also gives staff an opportunity to really bring their own authentic self to what they're teaching, whatever that means for that particular staff. So that's just one little tweak that we can make in terms of increasing belonging, which then has all of these knock-on effects. And ultimately, my hope and my aim is that that will happen not only in terms of the transition from first year undergraduate to second year to graduating, but that we can also keep that going because we know that there are certain groups of individuals who, who just don't, don't transition to masters. They don't transition to PhDs or the grades that they're getting because of the awarding gap means that there's certain things that just aren't available or open to them. No, it's brilliant. So it's great for everybody, but particularly for underrepresented and minoritized students. Exactly. It doesn't disadvantage particular groups. It's about helping those that have traditionally been disadvantaged to gain the advantage that everybody else already has, I think. Yeah, no, it's a really great way of explaining it. And I, yeah, I'm very hopeful with Curriculum Redefined that you just mentioned that we're actually going to create this space to do exactly that. Because you're as aware as I am that it's a major program. And one of the major elements of it is to move away from the teacher being far away from students, lecturing at them to work much more in interaction which hopefully will create that opportunity for students and, and teachers to see each other as people and to bring their lived experiences into the classroom and to really interact in a more human way, which will hopefully then also create that sense of belonging. So can, can you tell me a little bit more what your sense is of the ability for the University of Leeds to create a more compassionate curriculum in this, this whole big strategic program that we're implementing to redefine it? I'm really optimistic, actually. And I think I'm optimistic for an, a number of reasons. I think in part because I know there are a lot of staff and students who think that ethically and morally this is, this is what we should do. And because of that, we already have a whole range of champions and ambassadors who are already beginning to embed this into their work. And that curriculum redefined shines a spotlight on that and it allows people to really be recognized for those efforts, which I don't think has always happened before. So for me, I was more optimistic than I ever have been that we can really have a whole systems change in this and we can really put compassion at the heart of what we're doing. And do you have a sense of what this would mean for the teachers? Because there's also quite a bit of evidence, especially from North America, where interactive teaching has been practiced in some major universities for about a decade now. It's so much more rewarding for the teachers as well. It's not just good for the students, but it's also really good for the teachers. What is your sense about that? When I've spoken and I did some interviews with staff and some survey kind of insight work, 
for a lot of staff, the frustrations are coming from where they can see these roadblocks and where they don't have the agency, I guess, to put themselves into that teaching and to really reflect the world as they know it. And it's really hard, and I can say this personally as a member of staff, when you see something that you don't think's fair, but it's what you have to implement because you know that's the way the university works and the way it does it. And I think more and more we are seeing the ability to challenge those things and to no longer have to do the workarounds that so many of us have been doing, but instead we can make it our core business. And I, it can only be but more rewarding when you're given time and space to kind of develop this type of curriculum. Because we all see students who are falling down at different parts of the year and it's not nice to feel that somehow you've contributed to that through a timetabling issue or a, a way that a system's been implemented or whatever it was, you feel somehow responsible for that, even if you're not. And I know sometimes people are afraid that if we focus on these kinds of skills and, and attributes and creating more compassion in the way we educate, um, that the requirements of professional and regulatory bodies will not be met. Um, I don't think you and I share that concern, but, but can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's something that was raised quite a lot when I first started doing this work, actually, but what does this mean for our accreditation? I think what it means for your accreditation is that it will be stronger. And these two things aren't at odds because compassionate curriculum is not about stripping out bits of the curriculum that are necessary. It would be the opposite of compassionate. I work in the, the School of Medicine and it would be completely not compassionate to be sending our students into the NHS without the skills that they need. Compassionate curriculum is about preparing people for what comes next. And part of that is content, adherence to regulatory bodies. This actually strengthens it, if I'm, if I'm honest. If you look at most of the accreditations, inclusion, diversity, compassion, these values are all there. I think where the challenge comes is how do we do that within the content that we have to deliver and the ways that we have to. So we need to sometimes think a little bit outside the box, a little bit more imaginatory about how we're going to, to do these things in the context of our own professional accreditation. It is not about a dumbing down of our curriculum. It has to be that we prepare our students for the professional bodies in which they're going to be working within and with for their entirety of the career that they decide to stay in that discipline. So we have to prepare them for that and that's part of having a compassionate curriculum in my perspective. Yeah, so what you're basically saying is there's, it's not an add-on and it's certainly not in competition. It's, it's basically central to everything we're trying to achieve. It's also creating these global citizens of tomorrow. And you're one of Leeds world changers, so thank you. Yeah. You would agree with me that this, the compassionate curriculum is a great way of actually changing the world through our students? I think it's necessary. I think if we don't have a compassionate curriculum, then we're teaching students and we're showing students that the way we've always done things, the ways that have the systemic things that we do and the processes we have, which have kept inequalities how they are, that that's okay. And I would not want to be part of a system which is teaching people 
this is okay. We can just leave it as it is. I think we owe it to ourselves, to society and to our students to make sure that we're equipping them with the tools to reduce those inequalities. And hopefully one day we might even get to equity. It might be that we can get to equitable outcomes for everyone. And I think a compassionate curriculum is part of that journey. Yeah, that's, that's really great. That's really great. So, so when do you think we'll, we'll see this across the Faculty of Medicine and Health and hopefully across the university? Where, where are we in the progress from your perspective? I think we're all already seeing some of this and I think it's beginning to, to filter down. At Leeds, we have the compassionate curriculum conversations that happen once a month. Leeds has been a university for an awful long time and so it's not going to be done overnight putting compassion into the curriculum. But I think there's so many amazing examples and I've, I've purposely not named people because to do so would be to miss somebody out. But there's, there's so much work going on both within staff and students, actually. Students are really leading a lot of this work. So I know within the School of Medicine, we've got the I Belong at School of Medicine events. We recently had one around Ramadan. We've got a series on Where Are the Black Doctors? Both of those are student-led. You know, students are already doing a lot of this work at Leeds. Yeah, thank you. And that's why I think a strategy is so important to bring all those people together who are already working on these issues, but in relative isolation. And I'm really pleased we're also giving you an opportunity to to shine and lead. So thank you for doing all this work and thank you for playing such a central role on this very important theme and very important mission, if I may use that word, creating a more compassionate university, I think, not just a curriculum. So thank you, Bridget, for being one of our world changers and thank you for speaking to me today. And I'm looking forward to many, many more conversations. Thanks, Simone. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the University of Leeds. To find out more about the work of our early career researchers and to read essays written by world changer researchers, please go to the World Changers page on the university website. Details can be found in the information that accompanies this podcast.